This is episode three, Echo of Free Isn't Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free Isn't Freedom. And we have a, we've been, we got, a, well, by the time people hear this, they won't have had a delay. But there was a delay in the middle there. We're really sorry. Well, and, and I'd like to promote a little bit why the delay happened. Because okay. Conservancy launched a fundraising yes. campaign. That's right. And we probably, by the time you hear this... Which we the still, GNOME Foundation endorsed. It's correct. And by the time you hear this, we'll probably still need some more funds. And we have a third co-host today. We do. As you may have heard, my daughter is co-hosting with us. So you might hear some baby sounds. <laughs> and, uh, and well, I, this, is, you know, this has been the other challenge of recording, is uh, Karen's a mother now. And so. No, the challenge is that I'm so, we're both so busy with work. That's that true. That the only time that we have possibly free is on the weekend. That's true. So, you know, when childcare falls to the oddcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we have, uh, we've been trying oh, to push through. And I want to say that, um, I actually want to say that the, um, that the campaign that you're running right now is really important. Um, a lot of free software organizations have a, um, have a hard time trying to figure out what accounting software to use. And so I'm really glad that you're running this campaign. I think it's great. So if everybody should, uh, if you, if you have a few spare dollars, um, go ahead and contribute it. I also might add that GNOME is still running its privacy campaign, which is another noble cause. But uh, but right now, today, give your money to Conservancy's campaign. And well, tomorrow, you should donate to both. Donate to the privacy campaign. Donate to both. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I wrote this blog post years ago about how people don't give enough software, give enough, sorry, give enough money to free software projects they care about. It's true. And and I think generally, United Way, years and years ago, United Way is sort of a defunct, well, it's not defunct, but in some ways it's it's less needed because it's easier to find out about the charities you care about. But United Way used to have this campaign where on TV where they would say, if you, everyone just gave 1% of their income and 1% of their time to the causes they care about, that it would change the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I, while it was a cheesy campaign in the late 80s and early 90s, I think it actually was correct. I think people yeah. don't give 1% of their income and 1% of the time to the causes they care about. No, it's interesting. And it's like, I think that it's tough because it's like once you once you start giving and paying attention and giving of your time, then suddenly it's like an avalanche. So I think that people are somewhere in between. Like they're on the spectrum, but they tend not to be in the middle. If everyone would just do a little, we would be much better off. And that's where the 1%, 1% comes from. Yeah. yeah. That's the doing a little. Yeah. So I, I encourage people to donate to both Gnome Foundation and Conservancy's current campaign for uh, nonprofit accounting software, which you can find at sfconservancy.org slash campaign. And Karen, do you have a URL for... Yeah, gnome.org. Gnome.org. Isn't it gnome.org slash donate to actually get to the donate page? Uh, if you go to gnome.org, there's a banner at the very top and you can just click there. And you'll be there. And we're going to hear in this podcast from another individual who works for a 501c3 charity, uh, which is Jerv, and he's going to talk more about licensing issues because this is again from our FOSDEM 2013 panel. I think it's it's a great talk. We have the slides. I, I actually didn't. I don't well, I'll have to push around for the slides. I think, and yeah, I at think the time recording, we should, I don't we know should if we have try them. to get them because when I listened to it just before 
um, coming here. I, I really did wish I had the slides for. There are a few few jokes that I didn't get. <laughs> it's true, and th there were. I listened to it uh, a couple months ago without the slides, and there were jokes that I didn't get. But I think folks can follow it if they really need to without the slides. But if if you can get the slides and follow along with the slides, it's probably better. Uh, you can always go to faf.us, uh, which is where you subscribe to our RSS feed from, if you want to get the slides, and uh, if, if we have them, and otherwise it'll say we don't have them, and what's the reason. And the three of us will discuss it after, the, uh, after we listen to the speech again. Okay. Okay. I think we're ready, ready to go again, and we're going to continue with Gervais Markham. Hi. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Jervis Markham. Uh, I work for Mozilla. Uh, and for to different degrees over the past 10 years since I joined the Mozilla project, uh, I have found myself, via some, some would say, unfortunate happenstance, being involved in Mozilla's licensing, its copyrights, its trademarks, even occasional things on patents. Um, uh, in the UK, you would call me a barrackroom lawyer, or in the US, a jailhouse lawyer. I'm someone who spends a lot of time doing law things, but has no formal legal qualifications. Uh, and I, when uh, I heard that this room was going on, uh, I thought that perhaps you might be mildly interested by a sort of gentle canter through some of the uh, more or less interesting things that I have uh, come across uh, in my ten years uh, doing this sort of thing. So we're going to start with copyright, and then we'll go on to trademarks, patents, and then things that really don't fit into any category. Um, bread and butter questions that I will get asked. So I'm the first point of contact for licensing at Mozilla. Um, and so I maintain, I, I get the licensing at mozilla.org email. Um, and uh, so that email address is up on the web, and people can email that if they have a licensing query, uh, or in fact, uh, if they have a support request for Firefox. This being <laughs> by far the most common sort of email that I get. Uh, I have a boilerplate thing which I send them back explaining that with 450 million users, support by email doesn't really scale very well, and they should try our website. Um, first big question I get uh, asked a lot is, can I ship your software with these modifications? Um, and I sort of point them at our, our guidelines for that uh, and often put them in touch with our, our partners team who deal with actual deals that we make with people uh, to ship modified versions of Firefox. From internally, I often get the question, can we use this code? We're building this additional feature or we're doing this thing and we found this, uh, this code over here, can we use it? And it's like, is it open source? You know, what's the license on it? Um, has it, you know, often you get, you know, like both Apple and Microsoft's developer sites have tons of code that you're, you know, by implication asked to copy and paste. And if you look on the site and say exactly what license I am using this code under, it is really quite obscure. So we have to go and find out things like that and so on and so forth. Or there's this open source project over here, or there's this code that doesn't have a license. Um, Slightly more often than I would like, we get the question in its other form. Uh, we incorporated this code three weeks ago and we're shipping it next week. Is that okay? Um, uh, and that, of course, has exactly the same issues associated with it. Um, but perhaps with a little more urgency in that case. Uh, it will occasionally be that we go through one of our code bases and we find code that it is not okay for us to use and then we have to deal with that either by making it okay or by getting it rewritten. Uh, it is unfortunate that if you get in those, the second of those things, uh, we've used this code, is this okay, or if you discover it, you often find that, that code is quite hard to winkle out. Because of course, once code is in and working, and even shipped, 
changing it for other code is an engineering uh, expense and hassle without any corresponding increase in functionality or perhaps even a decrease in functionality. And therefore, persuading people to do that uh, can be somewhat difficult. There is at least one, there is one Mozilla product I know of which uses a web-based charting library which is, whose standard licensing terms are free for non-commercial use. Uh, and the guy who incorporated it emailed the guy and said, can we use it? And they said, sure. And so he used it. Uh, so our use of it is legal, but the license under which we're using it is not open source. And of course, in order to swap that out, first of all, you have to find a charting library of similar function, and then persuade someone to do the engineering work to swap over all the calls to it to a new API and test it again. So far, I have not managed to persuade them to do it. Uh, another thing I spend end up doing is, as I said, getting code licensed or relicensed so that we can use it. You know, this can involve even clarification of licensing terms. As some guy who assumes that, yeah, I just put it on the web, therefore you can use it. That's what happens, doesn't it? You know, if I don't write say anything, uh, no, that's not what happens. Uh, so that I get through. And then there's about colon license, which is the URL in the browser, which lists all of the licenses under which Mozilla code is. Um, and uh, I have to make sure that that is uh, up to date for each release. So these are the more normal things. But I also do more weird things and bigger things. And, uh, oh, last one, ECCN CCATs. Anyone know what these are? This is? No. Export Classification yes. Control Number. We have one. Yes. You have one? There you go. We don't. Um, I don't know why you do. I don't know why you do, because we don't have one because we're open source software. Are you not open source software? Actually, we got one in France, which is probably not the same thing. Not the same thing. This is the US regulations. When a big company wants to use Firefox and they have foreign offices, they send us an email going, this means we're exporting Firefox, and Firefox has crypto, so we need an ECCN number. Uh, and actually, these regulations, have, well, they were described by our guy, our one guy who understands them, who is no longer with the project, as um, complex and loaded with precedent, interpreted by lawyers only. So basically, we have a page that says, we think we probably don't need one of these, but we're not entirely sure, and we point them at that, and normally, they don't come back to us. <laughs> so, yeah, um, if we ever actually have to do some investigation into the actual proper legal status of this, we're in trouble. But I, I, I get the impression that this kind of system is bumbling on because no one wants to remove it because it'll look like loosening security, but it doesn't actually do anything useful. But I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, try licensing the code base is an example of a big thing that we did. Now, Mozilla was released in 1998, um, uh, and... Uh, it was released under the Mozilla Public License 1.0 uh, and the Netscape Public License 1.0, which were quite soon replaced by the Mozilla Public and Netscape Public License 1.1. And the addition in 1.1 was that it had this additional thing that you can multiply license your code if you want, and here's some nice boilerplate. Now, you could probably have multiply licensed your code anyway, because you can just say, you can have it under either of these licenses, but this provided a, a sort of formal way of doing it. Um, and sometime after that, uh, Mozilla as a whole decided that we would like code that we were writing to be able to be used in GPL projects and LGPL projects. Now the MPL, the Mozilla Public License, is not compatible with the GPL and the LGPL in the sense that you cannot take MPL code and put it into a GPL or LGPL project. Of course, if they're separate in an LGPL sense, obviously it doesn't have to be, you know what I mean. I don't need to explain that stuff to you guys. Um, so we decided we would switch to a license which was GPL compatible by dual licensing except we ended up triple licensing. And the reason that we did that 
is because, well, so the LGPL is compatible with the GPL. You can take LGPL code and relicense it under the GPL. There's a special clause that says you can. But what that clause also says is you have to change the license headers to demonstrate that that's what you've done. And we thought that if people did that, then they would probably wouldn't keep the MPL bit, and therefore we couldn't incorporate their changes. Whereas if we stuck all three licenses in the header to start with, by default people would also keep all three, um, and then we'd have more chance of getting code back from people um, who just you know, made changes and didn't care too much about the licensing situation. I don't know whether that was borne out. It certainly lengthened the boilerplate, but that was the reason for going with a, a triple rather than a, um, a dual license. So, uh, because Mozilla is a heterogeneously copyrighted project, every, each individual contributor owns their copyrights, we had to contact about 650 different people and get their permission for this licensing change. Uh, and, you know, we scraped CVS check-in logs, we scraped file headers, we did everything. We got this big list of people, we deduplicated it, and then we started emailing them. And, you know, you send out the first set of emails, and maybe 200 people come back. Then send out another set of emails, and you get another sort of 150 people, and so on. And we went round and round and round. This entire process took a, a bit over three years, although it wasn't the only thing that I was working on at the time. I hope to do it. In the end, we were down to about 30 people who we just couldn't find. And so this is what we did. We had a, have you seen this hacker page, which we managed to get up on Slashdot and posted everywhere, which had a list of all that we knew about these 30 people, like their last known email address, the kind of code changes they made. We didn't quite stick their picture on milk cartons. That's kind of an American reference. I don't know, we probably don't have this over here. But uh, we, 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 and then we encouraged people actually to do the research for us. And there was this one guy called, I think, um, Oleg, who basically found 10 of them. He was like, you know, some kind of web search ninja. He <laughs> tracked down 10 of these people all on his own and told me, yes, it's this guy, here's his email address, email him. So in the end, we pretty much tracked down everyone. I only think two or three people said no. There was one guy who was, uh, for, he was, you know, I think he was on the FreeBSD core team or something who got into a grump about the use of the GPL. And then there was another chap who, you know, was afraid that it would mean that all of the code he'd ever written would be have to be available on the web for free or something like that. Um, but we took those bits of code out and, and the tri-licensing happened and we, you know, it was kind of asymptotically approaching fully done, but we pretty much finished at the end of 2004. So you were lucky they were all alive? Sorry? I, yes, that's true. I don't think we came across anyone who was dead, believe it or not. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I'm just curious, when you go through this process, do you make any assessment on whether a contribution was copyrightable or not, or you just... So it's, it's much easier to just nail everybody, and then if you can't find someone, at that stage assess whether their contribution is copyrightable, because there's no penalty for getting permission from someone you didn't need to get permission from. So basically we just gathered together all of the names we could find, and again, that process was undoubtedly not perfect, but we hoped that if anyone didn't get asked, um, we'd find out about it because they'd complain, right? Um, and then we just emailed everyone and said, you know, we don't exactly know what you've contributed, but please just send us this email back pretty please. Uh, and in fact, what we also did was we said, we, we, there were particular things we were relicensing, but the permissions for grant we got was for any Mozilla.org hosted code, because we thought that if we changed our minds about exactly what we wanted to relicense in the future, we did not want to have to repeat this exercise again. Um, so we had all of these permissions on file and a tracking spreadsheet and so on. But no, we, we didn't... It, towards the for the guys who just said no, we obviously assessed their contributions, and and actually I think at least in at least one case we judged the contribution not copyrightable, so we just um, didn't bother. Um, we had to remove a couple of bits of code though. Oh, by the way, yeah, do interrupt me at any point and ask questions. Um, that's absolutely fine.
Yes. It depends how you do it, right? Um, so <coughs> copyright is about copies. It's not about functionality. That's the domain of patent law. Uh, and so you can have Chinese walls and clean rooms, or if in fact the code is small, you can just get some guy to describe it to some other guy. Um, yeah. So there, there, are, there are certainly ways that you can do it. I can't remember quite how we did it in this case. It was a long time ago. Okay. However, uh, more recently, we looked at the MPL 1.1, which we've been using for about 10 years as part of the tri license for most of it, and determined that it did have some suboptimal parts to it, the license. Uh, and I'm just going to uh, go through those bits that we thought weren't quite ideal in sort of 2008 or 9 or so. So the, um, some of this, I don't know, those of you who read the MPL may know, there's like a whole set of grants that the initial developer gives you, and then there's a whole set of grants that the additional contributors give you, and they're worded slightly differently, but their legal effect is almost exactly identical. It's something to do with the timing of the patent grant, or something that's different between the two. And we thought, that kind of sucks, and it makes it longer and more complicated, and we'd like to eliminate that, if we can. Um, it wasn't compatible with the GPL, hence the tri-licensing hack, we thought it'd be good to have a story that was better in that regard. It wasn't compatible with Apache in the sense that you couldn't take Apache code and stick it in an MPL file. Um, and that was something we were you know, finding increasingly that we would like to do, particularly as more and more big projects started getting Apache licensed in our domain. So things like Android, for example. Um, there were the notification requirements uh, for when you change something or something like that. And the uh, distribution requirements, you know, have to have the source up for three years, that kind of thing, was becoming burdensome and unnecessary in a world where, you know, most people have internet access. You can get a source code repo simply. You don't have to stick up tarballs. So we thought that, you know, while it was best practice maybe in 1998 to do these things, it may not be best practice 10 years later. Um, Jacobson versus Katzer was the court case in the United States um, where they managed to find one of the few pieces of software under the most ambiguous uh, open source license available, which is the artistic license, and have a lawsuit over it. Um, and in that lawsuit, it was suggested by the judge that it would be good if open source licenses used language of condition. And what that means is uh, that if you say these rights here um, are granted on condition that you do these things here, or doing these things here is a condition of the rights granted over here. And if you use language more like that, he said that it would be better. And so we took that hint and we used specific language of condition uh, in the new version of the MPL. So that's what we did. We took all of those bugs or sort of issues, put them together, uh, and we wrote the MPL version 2, which we thought we'd have done in 12 months. In fact, it took 24. So licenses can slip just as much as software does. Um, the, the, the bits that, this is a, a bit from the, one of the diffs between two versions. This is the bit that I was most involved with and most proud of. This is where we switched the license from being by default incompatible with the GPL to being by default compatible with the GPL. So if today you make some code and put it under the MPL2 and don't know anything else, it can be used in, it can be incorporated into larger GPL projects with certain conditions. Um, whereas the first drafts of the license had it the other way around. You had to specifically say that you wanted the compatibility. So, but what we did have to do, though, is anyone upgrading from straight MPL 1.1 was incompatible by default because it was thought that perhaps some people had used the MPL precisely because it was incompatible with the GPL. And if we made it incompatible by doing a new license behind their back, they might feel miffed by that. So, um, but still, um, a, a definite, definite improvement, I think. 
uh, we finished the license uh, and released that in early January 2012, so just over a year ago. Uh, and since then, um, it's been adopted by the Open Office project, uh, and it's also been adopted by us. Um, we've been slowly converting our code base over to use the new license. Um, this was as of, I can't remember quite how old my code base was when I ran this. This is a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, 44% of the files in our code base uh, that this license check covers actually have no license attached at all. Uh, I'm sure that's common in quite a few code bases. Um, we kind of, we have a doctrine of, a doctrine of kind of license pervasive bleedy next to -iness that says that if half the files in the directory are MPL and the other half probably are as well. Um, it hasn't been tested in the court yet. Though. <laughs> I, I'll probably think of a better name for it if, if we do test it in a court. Uh, so yeah, we're in the middle of moving over. There are some you can see left still under the trial license, uh, although actually that's um, not necessarily a problem because we do incorporate some third-party projects which adopted the same license as us but have not yet decided to make the switch. One of which is Hunspell, the spelling check engine, of which more later. Another thing I do um, is MPL interpretation. So people ask me, what does this clause in the MPL mean? Or if they're feeling lazy, I want to ship your software. What do I have to do? It's like, we have a fact, we have a license. Go and read them and come back with some specific questions, and I will be happy to answer them. Um, but uh, you, you often get questions. Yeah, we often get questions from people who are using MPL software, which has nothing to do with us whatsoever like uh, this. Uh, yeah, we're using this framework and apparently it's MPL, so can you explain that to us, please? Uh, well, yeah, maybe if I've got some time, but you know it's nothing to do with us, right? Yes? I was just wondering if you're tracking yourself like high priest of the MPL. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no. Uh, Mitchell Baker, uh, who is the chief lizard wrangler of the Mozilla project, was the author of the original MPL uh, and still has final say about what goes into it. I guess, in a sense, a court has a final say about what it actually means, um, and I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people what we think it means, uh, but no, I'm an underpriest. Uh, another problem that I encounter a lot is that people assume that free as in freedom still means non-commercial. I mean, you end up getting emails like this. Um, we know your software is like free and open source and everything, but can we still use it commercially? It's like, yes, that's kind of what it means to be free and open source. I, I, it is amazing how often I get asked this question. I, I, you know, I just don't know why there is this pervasive view, but a lot of people do seem to think that free means non-commercial. Uh, another thing I do is licensing archaeology. Um, this is quite rare, but I got this wonderful, wonderful email. Um, so yeah, I wrote some Java code like you know a while back, and it was using some code that last had a release 10 years ago, and you, do you guys have that? Or is it with someone else? <laughs> Actually, it turned out, I did manage to find it, um, the code that he was talking about, and it turned out that it was now part of Java itself. So I could tell him that that's where he could go to find the APIs that he needed. But um, yeah, I was happy to be able to help him, but you know, it's kind of like, what do I do with this? Yes, uh, uh, 10 points for anyone recognizes the Harry Potter reference. Hunspell is a bit of um, software for spell-checking um, uh, spell text, um, and we started using it uh, in Mozilla. Uh, and then at some point, quite recently actually, we got an email 
from a large nameless blue software company uh, who had been doing some due diligence on Firefox and asked us, so Huntspell, its license has changed a few times. Are you guys completely sure that it's licensed correctly? And I thought, okay, I do remember them changing the license to our license so that they could put it into, you know, he said he'd done all of his checks. So I went to look at the change log and actually he did keep a change log, which is better than many projects. And this is what I found. 2002, uh, he forked the BSD licensed MySpell and turns it into Hugspell under the GPL. Okay, yeah, he even kept the old BSD license headers, which we're supposed to do, so good, good. 2003, actually, let's use the LGPL. 2005, actually, let's use CC Attribution. The following day, actually, no, let's use CC LGPL. <laughs> 2006. Actually, no, let's use the try license. That will be good. 2007. Let's incorporate some GPL only code and relicense that. So, so um, this took a little bit of sorting out. <laughs> so, basically, it took several emails backwards and forwards and rereading change logs and reading CVS things and seeing who checked in. And we eventually found out that it turned out that various bits of code had been removed <coughs> along the way, which were the bits that would have had dodgy licensing provenance. And actually this last line, where it says, I got the permission of the author, that is actually true. But the one guy that it turned out we had to ask as well, was a guy who'd contributed to that code in its original kind of repository, after the guy who wrote it had wrote it, but before the guy who pinched it, pinched it. <laughs> <laughs> so, after I sent him an email and got his permission, I could then tell large unnamed software company that we were fairly confident that Huntspell was validly licensed under the try license. But that took, that took a little bit of work. That was quite fun. Firefox OS. So um, about a year ago, some of you may have heard, Mozilla decided to release an entire mobile phone operating system. And the way that a Firefox OS works is that at the bottom, it's what we call gonk, which is basically sort of the guts of Android, Linux kernel, um, various other bits and pieces, uh, which we basically pinched because lots of hardware companies make Android compatible drivers, uh, and we thought that basing it on that would allow us to port more easily and things like that. Directly on top uh, is the Gecko rendering engine, and then, and then on top of that are HTML5 web applications, including a suite of applications called Gaia, which is sort of the basic phone user interface, mm -hmm. dialer, all that sort of thing. But you can install other applications as well. So, of course, what has basically happened is that people have been trying to produce this at very high speed to get it shipped. Um, which it, it, we went to version one on the 15th of January, and they've been pulling in code from all over the web uh, to uh, try and get this done. Uh, and shortly before the release, I found out that I had the job of making sure that we were compliant with all of the licenses involved. So, uh, I wrote a license scanner, which looks across a code base, takes all of the licenses that it can find, works out what license they are, uh, and then uh, for licenses which are almost similar, determines whether almost similar is actually the same, and if so, amalgamates them, uh, and then produces a list of all of the unique licenses it finds, which you can then ship with your software. Uh, and in the process, I found out that there were actually quite a lot of different licenses uh, in the code base. Um, in particular, not quite 76 million, uh, but there were, um, there were, I think, over 160 different BSD and MIT, distinct, distinct BSD and MIT license variants in the code base, right? And that doesn't just mean like using ABC instead of one, two, three for the bullets. 
It means distinct as in actually had a meaningful wording change. Part of the problem is uh, that the templates on the OSI website and other places encourage you to stick your company name right in the middle of the license. And of course the license says, and a copy of this has to be shipped. And so you have to ship a copy of each version with every different company, right? And you end up with a an about license page, which is 160 copies of the BSD and MIT licenses at the bottom. <laughs> That's what the license says to do. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that we can solve that problem perhaps by getting some generic wording put on the OSI website. Instead of saying insert company here, it just says contributors or something like that. And I did start a thread on the OSI mailing list, license discuss mailing list about that, which I need to kind of get back to. But maybe in the future, in 20 years time, someone else won't quite have the 76 million license variants problem. Someone stuck their hand up. Yes. So what's your 10 second recommendation if I want to do a non-copyleft piece of the license? Uh, what do you mean if you want to do? Yeah, do you mean if you want to write one? Yes, everybody should write their own licenses. What a great idea. <laughs> oh, no, hang on. Oh, um, uh, I would use, um, if you want a non-copyleft software license, I would probably use CC0 or something. No, I would have to take a measure. Uh, well, yeah, okay. So it depends. Or for something small, use CC0. If you want a patent grant, then use Apache. Yeah, so I would say that, yeah, for good point, for anything non-trivial or anything in an area where there are patents, um, anything you want to build a commercial contributor community around, use something with a patent license. Because if one big company comes into a project that doesn't have a patent license in the license, then no other big company will join because they're afraid they'll start using the software and be sued by the first big company, right? So. Seriously, I mean, we. This, this is why we're using um, Apache. We've, we've moved a couple of projects actually at Mozilla recently from uh, BSD licenses, which the original people chose, to Apache because um, because we want to make sure that we can have more than one behemoth uh, involved in their production. Yeah. So yeah, CC zero for little things, uh, Apache for anything bigger. That's my advice. Yes. There if you want, if you want non-copyleft. There are a couple of BSD licenses around, but just to reference the copyright folder. Which is very yes, nice yes, for, yes, yeah. and that's what I'm hoping we can get the OSI website to say, so when people come along, copy-paste. Also, let's not use HTML bullets, because if you do, people notice the bullets are missing and they put them back in. Except these people use stars, and these people use hyphens, and these people use numbers, and these people use letters, and you then have five different variants of every variant of the... Uh, you just need a, a bullet comparison algorithm. <laughs> yeah, but you have to... Anyway. Include your yes. Device. Um, the license scanner you wrote. Yes. Ask why you didn't use Classology and whether you have or already released it. I have released the code. Um, it's the same code that I used for relicensing the first time and the second time. So it's like a code base that has some history, and it takes a little bit of care and feeding to get working. But it is available. It's on. Uh, it's in my user repository on Mozilla's HG server. It's called Relic, uh, and it is one. Um, <laughs> Uh, and why I didn't use Fossology is because I kind of looked at the website and it was like, and you get a database and all of this, and I'm like, I just want a script, man, and a report. It's simple. So uh, maybe I should have looked at Fossology a bit more detail, but it also didn't have the kind of, and I can, it didn't by default have the, and I need a list of all of the licenses, and I need to work out which ones are the same, and that kind of thing, and I needed all of that too, and it seemed easy just to hack on my own thing. Maybe that was a mistake, but there you go. Sorry, yes. Uh, do you write it from scratch? 
Well, so it was originally written in Python by a guy called Scott Collins for the first relicensing back in 2001. At that point, I didn't know Python, so I was reliable on, uh, reliant on other people to maintain it. I've since learned some Python, and so I maintain it myself. Uh, it's slightly better written now, but please don't, if you actually go out and use it, take it as any kind of example of good code quality. Oh yeah, I had to go with that. Uh, and I ran it for the first time, and it left eight temporary files in each directory, and I thought, ooh. Yeah, it, it, it kind of, it seems to be solving a similar but slightly different problem. It's written in Perl, which I do know. But, um, again, I couldn't quite see how to bend it to my will. So, yeah, maybe that this says, says something about my skills as a hacker rather than about the qualities of the two pieces of software involved. Happy to admit that. Other questions? Yeah. You said that there were 24 GPL variants. No, 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 no. The, 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 it was that was a joke. That wasn't actual numbers. Yeah, there's only three. Um, okay. Other things that I've come across. Uh, a few puzzlers. So um, this is kind of like for your amusement and interest, not so that you can go out and tell everyone about it and embarrass us. Okay. So it's recording. Wow. I'm sure you'll. And that means you're on the tape too. <laughs> so, someone from the OpenJDK people on the Mac says, we want to bundle your root store. What are the, what's the license for all the certificates in your root store? It's like, well, the CA sent them to us and we shipped them. That's what happened. <laughs> Any questions? Um, yes, you, you bundle with lots of search engines and you put the little fav icons. What license are those fav icons under? Did we put something about that in the contract? I bet we didn't. Uh, so, yes, occasionally you come across something where you just kind of go, yeah, someone else think about that. Let's just pretend it's not a problem. Trademarks. Bread and butter trademark inquiries include, now, I don't do, like, commercial deals for the Firefox trademark. I do the Mozilla trademark, and I do, like, simple stuff that's obvious for the Firefox trademark. So, can I use your logo? Can I sew the Thunderbird logo onto my two-year-old's T-shirt for her present? Yes, you can. How adorable. Do send us a photo. My website is best viewed in Firefox. Do you have a button? No, we don't, because we don't like websites which are best viewed in Firefox. We like websites which are best viewed in any standards-compliant browser. But if you want to say, download Firefox here, we have buttons for that. I'm a 17-year-old furry on Second Life. My group is called the FennecNet, and I would love to use the Mozilla Fennec logo for my group. Actually, we don't get this one that often. <laughs> but we did get it once. Did we trademark that? Does it matter if we didn't trademark that? Can we stop him? <laughs> Subscription traps. Um, now, Simon has stolen my thunder here. So I'll briefly say that uh, this is something that Mozilla has been doing a lot of work on, and most of it actually hasn't been done by me, although I've kind of been documenting the work that we've been doing. Um, subscription traps are indeed websites where they entice you for free downloads uh, and end up selling you a subscription uh, to their website or to their download recommendation service or to whatever it is they're, they're doing it as. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing you start with, and this is the kind of thing you end with. For those of you without very good vision, that says the total charge in your account today will be £75.58. Uh, if you're interested in seeing how these sites work and the kind of way that they work, I actually went through one of them, which I found to be still up, taking screenshots and kind of wrote a commentary. Uh, and you can read that there. Just Google for Jerv Pay Download Tour or something like that. You'll, you'll find it. Um, it is fascinating. But I'm pleased to say that towards the beginning of last year, 
uh, a case in which Mozilla was involved, the ringleader of a subscription trap um, organization went down in Germany for three years and six months. And, uh, uh, and the other people went down for less. And actually, the prosecutors in that case had started off on fraud, and we had to kind of talk them into adding in the trademark bit. Uh, but in the end, the trademark bit was really quite significant because we had injunctions going back several years enjoining them from this behavior. And so that could prove that went to willfulness. Um, and so that was a significant factor in the judgment that was rendered. So we're really pleased about that. We think that people who operate these kind of sites are ripping off the public and should be stopped. Uh, and so, yeah, we hope there's it, only one ring, although it was quite a, quite a significant one. We hope there'll be more in the future. Okay. Permissions requests. I often get people, and we were talking about this in the trademark thing, um, sending me emails saying, give me permission, please, to do this or do that or do the other, to use this screenshot or to use your logo when talking about you. And very often I just reply and say, look, that's fair use, go ahead. But this one pretty much took the biscuit. This was an email with a covering letter, an attached PDF with a logo, all of this formal, formal kind of thing saying, can we please link to your homepage. <laughs> that was my reply. <laughs> yes? I, I, this is, a, I mean, I think this is an interesting question and it's more than, you know, just trademarks and links, but um, I was always torn between just saying, go ahead, knowing full well that they didn't need my permission, but making everybody's life easier by granting permission, versus boiling the pot and saying, you don't need permission, and then getting into a whole argument about whether or not they need permission, and like, and that, but then feeling like I was contributing to a permission-based culture. Right, so actually we, so. Had, we had this issue recently, in fact, um, when a, and I will talk about this in general terms, um, the, uh, a, a large filmmaking organization asked us for permission to use one of our logos in a film that they were making in a way that I thought was covered by fair use. And so I said yes. And normally they, they, it always comes with a form, and, it's, and normally I say, I don't do forms, we think this is fair use, go right ahead. So I do both. I say, we think this is fair use, but I also say, go right ahead. Um, and so I did that, and this time, because I thought it would be kind of cool, and they won't do it unless I fill in the form. I filled in the form. And then when I went, went to kind of get them some copies of the logo, there was a rethink in other parts of Mozilla. Uh, and there was a contingent which suggested that we say no. Uh, I argued that we should not prevent people from doing things that we thought they were legally able to do otherwise. Um, and we should encourage a culture of use of fair use rights. This view did not uh, prevail in the end in our reply. So uh, that's what happened. But, um, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you that I think that when people ask you for permission to do things that you, that you think they should be allowed to do anyway, you should tell them not to ask in future and then give them permission anyway in case they still feel nervous. Yes? So there, there is a drawback in actually saying yes, even if they do not need to ask, that you're, you will encourage others right. to come again and you know, ask the same thing. So this might not be relevant for large project with a non-profit or anyhow, any, anyway with yeah. personal staff paid to do that, but yeah. in a purely volunteer project, that's all bandwidth of the yeah, yeah. community that right. you would take out. The so to be fair, actually, the people who were um, arguing the other case said that uh, there is a difference between saying yes to something and saying we don't object to something. 
or yes. as it were, to, to say nothing about something. Because if you say yes, that is in some sense, even if it's just an email, some sense of endorsement of the inclusion. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying that this is obvious and clear cut, but I still feel that we should do our best to encourage a permission, a culture of use of permissions that are there rather than a culture of asking just in case. Okay, patents, uh, the third leg of the um, intellectual property stool, as it were, um, which are about which I won't say much because we don't have any. Well, not really. Um, we, I can't remember quite how they passed, but there are some that are now owned by the ZIP organization, which I think may have originally belonged to us, which apply to Opus. Um, and we gave a royalty-free license to all implementers of Opus for that. Uh, and we also got one out of Broadcom and the Microsoft as well. So that is why Opus is a royalty-free standard. So that's a small example of us using uh, patents in a, in a way which promotes openness, which we're pleased about. But in general, uh, we don't have them. We spend much more of our time trying to avoid them. Um, and that's not something I get uh, too involved in. <laughs> Miscellaneous. Okay, just as we finish, here are some of the slightly unclassifiable things which have come across my desk in this role. Um, IPO inquiries. Initroad Partners is a technology buyout fund. How about a float for Mozilla Corporation? It's like, clearly, you've done enough research on our company to realize that we are a corporation, but not enough to realize that we're actually owned by a foundation which isn't legally allowed to sell off parts of itself to investors. Yes, clearly your due diligence is strikingly unusual. <laughs> I think I may have actually got this one twice. <laughs> Sorry? It seems they are really <laughs> Yes, yes it does, doesn't it? Yeah, we know what we're doing. Everything's safe in our hands. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take questions while you cast your eye down this list of uh, self-explanatory um, Amusements. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> I like the bottom one. If someone who's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Just asking for a friend. Yeah. For a friend. Right. My friend. Okay, and anyone anyone got any questions? Yes. Yeah, uh, can you tell us about the, the story of Ice Weasel? The story of Ice Weasel. So yeah, I actually I should have covered some of this. So for a period of time, which to some degree, well, there was a time when the Firefox binaries we shipped were not free software because they contained a thing called TalkBack, which was um, a crash reporting system, which was made by a company called, I can't remember what their name was, it wasn't actually TalkBack, um, and that Netscape had used and that we used because the data that we got from it was too valuable to not use. And everyone hated it and it had binary components and the servers had to be on certain versions of Windows and keeping them up was a pain and so on. And eventually the pain got too much and we got together with Google and wrote BreakPad, uh, which we now use, and Socorro, which is the, the information gathering server. So now that's not a problem. But during that period, the Firefox binaries were not uh, open source because they contained the software, although the source code that you could download and you could build your own Firefox, and it wasn't. Um, somewhat coinciding with that period, we were also working out how to best manage the Firefox trademark. And um, we wanted to have restrictions on the use of the trademark, 
but we thought that there would be problems if we said, here's this file with a logo in it, which is completely free software, but actually the picture that the file represents has restrictions on it. We thought that people would have trouble getting their heads around that. Uh, and so what we did was we made the logo files not free software as well. Just the files containing the Firefox logo. Um, and so some combination of that fact and the fact that we had trademark restrictions on the use of the trademark um, led to the formation of Iceweasel. And there were various negotiations with various people at various points, with people, uh, you know, and the story is long and complicated. And eventually we eliminated the problem of the non-free logo files and we decided we'd just bite the bullet and try and use trademark only to control the trademark and that actually hasn't worked out badly, so that's good. Um, and, but we still, of course, do have restrictions on how we can use the trademark. And there were some attempts to come to an agreement with the Debian project in particular about how that would work. And then there were some people on both sides who clattered in with their size 11s and said some slightly regrettable things. Um, and anyway, the result is Ice Weasel. So, um, you know, I think that it's great that people take our stuff and build their own cool stuff with it. I think Ice we the Ice Weasel project has probably developed a few more raison d'etre since then than just uh, we're Firefox without the Firefox logo. And they may have, I think they have some sort of different defaults on some privacy settings and things like that. So um, th that's just the way it is. Uh, trying to kind of fix that and hold everybody together seems to be an, a not desperately useful use of time compared to just letting people get on with it. Well, it's actually underway. Uh -huh. It's actually on the way to have Firefox back in Debian. Oh, really? Yeah. I had not heard about that. Maybe I hadn't heard about so it. Mike is Ice Weasel Monday. It's Ice Weasel Monday. Ah, yeah. oh, there you go. That would be good. It would be nice. I'd like to see that. Yes? A related question. Um, bundles with Firefox and plugins. Yes. Quite rare. Uh, the only one I'm actually aware of is Tool One. Uh, tool um, plugins and Firefox is included. Why is that? Why aren't so there more it, bundles? When you say plugins, do you mean things like Flash, Java, and Silverlight, or do you mean add-ons, or do, what do you mean? Um, Adblock, right? Like that. Yes. Um, in one sense, it's quite rare because um, we consider that a significant change to Firefox, um, and so they would have to get permission from us to do it, and we haven't given permission primarily because it's a lot of work to kind of make that kind of arrangement and it should be easy to install add-ons anyway. Uh, I mean, you know, if you think that that's not a major change, just imagine some guy who decides I'm going to ship Firefox with eight toolbars, right? Um, the, the user experience would be pretty miserable. Um, and yeah, so we consider, we consider that kind of thing um, something that needs special permission. So I guess that's why it doesn't happen a lot because it requires an arrangement, I suppose, is the answer to your question. Are there a special arrangement with tools? Sorry? Is there a, a, a tour project? Is there a tool, special relationship? Oh, project. the tour project. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how that got worked out. So uh, I'm assuming that they're not, I'm assuming that they have some kind of arrangement with someone, but I wasn't involved in it. Is theirs branded Firefox? I assume so. They have different operations. You see, it was Tor Browser. Is it now branded Firefox? No. Yes. The Firefox branding with a different name. Oh, so it has the logo but not the name? Uh, no, fine. Okay, anyway. Not even the logo. Yes. Yes. Maybe off topic, but why doesn't Mozilla recognize the CA search uh, root certificate? 
Uh, that is slightly off topic, but it's <laughs> vaguely legal, so I will talk about it. And the, the, the question was, why does Firefox not recognize the CA cert root certificate? And the primary simple answer is that CA cert have not applied for inclusion. The, and we only include certificates that apply for inclusion and then meet our criteria. And I suspect the reason that they have not applied for inclusion is because they would not meet our criteria. Um, and the criteria were actually, at the time the criteria was written, we actually wrote them in several ways, slightly differently, to make sure it was technically possible for an organization like CA Cert to eventually be included. But, and I don't follow the CA Cert project, so I don't know what the situation is, right? So forgive me if I say something wrong about them, but at least a few years ago, the situation was that the root certificate they were using had a sufficiently dodgy history, if you looked back, that it was very difficult for them to assert with confidence that they had always maintained control of its private key. The certificate, the project had been through several changes of leader, there had been some acrimony and things like that. Uh, and so the CACERT project, I believe, accepted this and said in the long term we're going to need a new private key, uh, a new root certificate, uh, which they have not yet cut because another thing they wanted to do was have an audit and they haven't done that yet. Uh, because I believe of internal project tensions, but you'd have to ask them. So, I mean, I know several people who were involved in potentially doing an audit for the CA CERT project who are no longer involved in doing said potential audit. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't like to comment on their internal project procedures, governance, personality clashes, or anything like that, but I wouldn't expect to see their certificate trusted in Firefox in the near future. Yes? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, when you were looking for all the um, different licensing you had in the project, did you find any licenses that were conflicting with each other? With one project with two different conflicting licenses? Uh, no, but it's not necessarily certain that the sort of software I was running over it would have turned up that sort of thing. Okay. So, I mean, I did also, also do various looking arounds as, a as I was sorting through the results. So if I'd spotted it by hand, I would have gone, oh, that shouldn't be the way it is. But I guess there's there's an assumption that if you get a bunch of code from Android, some expensive Google people have already dealt with that. <laughs> That's the hope. Yes? You said that you don't have an ECCN number. Do you do any export control at all? Any? Export control, sorry. So ECCN. if you Google for Firefox ECCN, you will see probably as the second hit a page on our wiki where, which at the very bottom has our kind of official statement on what we think the law is and whether we need one or not and what bits of the regulations we're looking at, which I am not able to quote from memory. So, um, okay, so I, I think basic, there's an exception in the law that says if you're completely open source, you don't need one of these, and I think we're taking advantage of that. Yeah, I think. You don't need a number, but do you do any expert control? Or do you mean as in do we, uh, do we stop uh, Firefox from being exported to certain places? Right. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Do you mean as in do we block IPs in Cuba or something from our download servers? Yes, or North Korea uh, or whatever. I am not in, I don't, I have not heard that we do. If we did, it would be pretty futile because anyone can redistribute yeah. Firefox binaries. Um, but I wouldn't like to say for certain one way or another what we do about that. Uh, I'm not entirely sure it would be wise to say actually, <laughs> but if even if I did know. Um, any more questions? Okay, well. Uh, thank you very much.
I thought that was a really interesting talk. You know, Jerk has a great job. Yeah, it's well, it's it's rare that an organization is big enough that someone like Jerv can have a full time job doing just that. I, I I'll be frank, Mozilla is a big organization compared to other oh yeah organizations absolutely. in our community, and therefore he is able to have a full time job doing that. Where in most cases that's a part time job. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the, the kinds of stuff he was describing doing, for example, at the FSF, is a part time of what the licensing compliance officer at FSF does. But just he as does a do a lot of different stuff. I mean, he was, I'm sure he didn't describe every single thing that he true did, enough, and it was true pretty enough. broad. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it, yeah, I, I agree with you about that. Well, and and, and I it think changes it, based on what's going on. So. Yeah. Well, I think it's valuable that they have someone who's a non lawyer who focuses on license issues for the project yeah um, most projects don't actually have that they they might have legal counsel but it, it, it's it's rare that they have a non-lawyer expert like Jervis in in free software licensing to actually answer questions about trademarks copyright licensing and, and in some cases patent they didn't talk a lot about patents. yeah I mean it's a lot of work just communicating that information and you know having all that discussion well, like I said, he gets a lot of emails that he has to ignore. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, Free Software Foundation, I, I make mostly comparison to them because, frankly, Conservancy doesn't get a lot of emails of this nature. But <laughs> and Cora <laughs> gets a number of emails of this nature already. She, she's, she's like one, she's, less than one. She's much less than one, and she's already a licensing expert. And she, well, she gets licensing emails <laughs> from projects because people people get a little desperate in their <laughs> questions, and they're happy to send them to a one-year-old because they figure a one-year-old who happens to be the daughter of someone who runs a free software org probably has more information about free software licensing than they do. She wants a, like there to be an outreach program for babies. <laughs> Baby developers. Well, this is this is what we've come to. I right? cannot wait to teach her um, her first like programming skills. I'm so excited. Well, I was I was referencing. It's funny. I, I this is off topic, but uh, I was referencing. I, I talked to somebody at Scale when I was at Scale about. Oh well, it's good that they have uh, programs for children. It's like that's kind of a new thing. And somebody said to me, "It's like yeah, because all the people who organize <laughs> Scale now have children who need to it's be taken care of." It's true. Like now, now Aquatic, everybody's talking about having childcare support because it, it's tipped like enough gnome people have kids. Yeah. that it's become of interest. But I mean, I think it's good because I think it just attracts a more diverse set of people. Oh, I, I wasn't against it. It wasn't that I had a problem with it. It was just, oh, this is a new thing at scale. And yeah, well, it's because we've reached that, you know, we, we, we as a sort of a community, many of us have sort of reached that, that age. And, you know, the GNOME community in particular, because there was a, a real like swell of people that were all of a certain age and now many of them have kids but this is actually one of the things that i wanted to talk about Jerv's uh speech is that that? was well he talked about the relicensing issue and he said that he you know in their particular instance they didn't have any they never none of the developers that they were contacting to relicense for the tri-licensing were deceased and i think that's going to become much less likely in the future yeah and in a I mean, future already, talk we're gonna hear more about this in fact yeah a lot more and it's that same sort of like cycle of life thing as we get older yeah it's true it's true I, well I, and I, I feel like there have been a few prominent deaths recently um in the free software community have there been yeah, yeah. so i the interesting thing is core is more silent when i talk because she's not familiar with my voice so she, i think it's just that you speak with such 
you know, authority, authority and, and, and charisma. But she's just, well, that's she's, nice of you to say. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know very much about children, but I have been trying to learn about dogs and dog they're very care. similar and, at this point. Well, and, and to give the, you, you have to give the appearance of authority with dogs. So. I guess I'm giving the I mean, authority. You can't see, but but she's actually got a uh, her chew toy, which is also very similar to <laughs> dogs. <laughs> so, but I, back on topic. I, okay, I, yeah. One of the things that that um, it, it was so it's, it's funny because in I think we're going to try to use it as an outtake. Although Dan said that that producer Dan said that there was a few of the outtakes that I wanted to use that were a little less uh, a good enough quality to use. But one of the out one of the outtakes I wanted. Uh, so we'll, we'll pause for a chorus. Input. Her, her very considered input. <laughs> about about giraffes. Um, so, but, but one of the uh, the outtakes that I was going, I was thinking about using was during, uh, when I showed up, because I was out most of the day on Saturday at Fosdom, and I showed up at the end of the day for my panel, and which followed Jerv's talk. And Jerv's talk, interestingly, had this uh, reference to the LGPL, which I walked in and, and was and we were, I was entertaining the crowd before our panel, and I, I said, "Hey, does anybody know how to comply with the LGPL when you want to combine it with GPL stuff?" And Fontana looked at me and was like, "Everybody in the audience knows that." And I was like, "No." And he was like, "Well, Jerv talked about it," <laughs> and, and then not till I heard the recording later did I realize. The, the Jerv, in fact, referenced the issue of the header change thing with LGPL. And, yeah. um, and, and I really felt for it. I, I've not been uh, uh, sympathetic to the MPL in the past, but I was really sympathetic that he pointed out the header change issue caused trouble for the MPL. And I felt kind of bad for the LGPL having that problem because it was sort of LGPL's fault. It's a poor drafting decision in the 1993, ver or I guess it's at that point, it's 97 version of LGPL that failed to really address the issue of license combining in a modern way, I suppose. Right. And so I felt bad for Jerv about that. I felt bad for MPL about that, that LGPL was giving MPL trouble. Well, I think sense. that that's, I mean, that's just also like an evolution. There, there are a lot of problems with a lot of the different licenses that sort of you know, we've been ironing out over time. And the other, the other thing, I, I have to, this is a very minor point, but because of the people giving a hard time about RMS having too much decision-making authority with regard to the GPL family. Oh, oh, his comment about Mitchell? Yes, the fact that he said, well, Mitchell Mitchell has final authority on MPL. It's right. very similar to RMS having final authority well, on But it's even GPL. more so, right, because MPL, doesn't MPL have an automatic upgrade? True enough, has? true enough. And, and has. Yes, in fact, and that's a so point that... So it's actually that, a greater... Yeah. Greater authority. She has full control over what happens with a lot of code, whereas RMS doesn't have as much control because there's not automatic upgrade. You can choose to give FSF authority uh, for GPLv2 or later, GPLv3 right. or later, but uh -huh. you can't choose nope. whether to give MPL authority. Nope. And so, and so I, I, I like that. In, in some sense that there are, in any organization, people who, whose authority is pretty strong. And and that's true of RMS, and that's true of Mitchell as well with regard to Mozilla. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's I don't think it's a it's a bad thing. It's a thing that I think we should be transparent about. But the there's a certain amount, and, and at some it's interesting actually. If you want to talk about, I don't want to put you on the spot, but uh, if you want to talk about how Gnome, there was a time when Gnome had a certain level of authority for Miguel that's not true anymore. You know, I actually don't know. I mean, that's before it's my before time, time. So I don't and, really know. But I would say that in both the cases of Mozilla and the FSF. Both 
RMS and Mitchell are both res- they're they're both must be responsive to their board of directors. Yeah, true. So so at the end of the day, while they have all that authority, if they were to abuse it, then they would you know the directors would have an obligation. Agreed, but I think that um, everybody in the community is deferential, and the Mozilla community is deferential to Mitchell, and in the in the sort of hardcore GNU community is deferential to RMS about licensing. Yeah, but if they were to abuse that, you know. Yeah. But I don't think either of them is likely to no. abuse the authority. Well, that's why they have that. I mean, that, that's why they're in those positions. Yeah, agreed. And, yeah. Um, the, the final thing I wanted to mention, I think Karen has a bigger list than I do, actually. We covered um, a lot of it, actually. But uh, but uh, I I thought it was interesting that, that he got asked about export controls issues and that they don't have an export controls number. And, and the export controls issue has been such a – it's such a quagmire. Um, I mean, Fontana, well, Fontana said this was like, uh, do, do you remember this this thing where Fontana said that it was, go, uh, we mentioned this on the podcast before, but Fontana told me it was like um, when, uh, in, in Planet of the Apes, when the Charlton Eston, the, the astronaut, goes looking for the, the, the remains of the human uh, human civilization in the ape planet, that it was it's that dangerous. I don't agree with Fontana about that, but I think it's interesting that it's a perennial issue that comes up. I don't think looking into I just think that there's a lot of confusion. But. I mean, and I think that we, we do pass the buck a bit, as Sturb was saying, right? Like, we do say, well, we believe that we don't need a number, but or we don't have a number, but you need to evaluate your own, yeah. you know, your own situation. And I've been in that. I've, I've had to give that um, response a number of times, but the TSU... For as well? Actually, it really hasn't come up that much for GNOME. GNOME, yeah. But, uh, but the, and I, you know, the TSU... Well, well, I guess you rely on crypto libraries that you don't, in some sense, yeah. actually distribute. You know, it's, it's interesting. I haven't actually done the analysis. For, I shouldn't admit that in the podcast. But, uh, <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's fine because it hasn't... I think you're right that it hasn't come up for an issue. Yeah. If it hasn't come up for an issue, why should you have to do the analysis for GNOME in some sense? It's, it's why, why right. do that analysis as a non-profit, non-commercial distributor of the software? I, that's sort of the point I think now, that, I do that know Drew is that getting if at. you're solidly within the TSU exception... You know, I wanted to clarify one thing because uh, okay, Joe was saying that he didn't, you know, he didn't know about the uh, the restricted countries and whether they needed to block it. And even if they did block it, it would be pointless. But and actually, I think I haven't looked into this for a while. But the uh, the exception, as I understand it, um, once you're solidly within the exception, you don't you you don't you can't knowingly distribute to those countries, but you don't have an affirmative duty to. Check. Prevent yeah. distribution, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the funny thing about I, I, the thing I think is most humorous about. Oh, but you Cuba, do if you're in that exception, you do need to if you're you're in that you do need to notify. So you, you there are affirmative steps you need to take. You need yeah. to register basically register your software. Well, and the silliness of this, uh, for example, the 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 complete boycott on Cuba that we have in the United States when so many people from Europe use Cuba as basically a, a place to go for vacation. <laughs> And there's all these, yeah, exactly, Corey. Or I mean, really wants to go to Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> well, but the, the thing is, is that, is that uh, how many people uh, from Europe go to vacation in Cuba, take their laptops and distribute all of the software? It's the same software that was distributed from the U.S. because it's free software, yep. readily available. How many Debian laptops go into Cuba every day? I'm sure it's on the order of dozens, if not if not hundreds. So there's all this distribution of software into Cuba and other places where the U.S. government would have this issue, and yet the, the, 
it's the confusion. I, I mean, I feel like it's so much better that export control situation when we had the the really hardcore crypto thing back when I used to wear, a, a, which I have in my closet, where where my apartment right now. I can go show uh, Cora for the first time a, a, She's a, a very RSA. Interested. She's very interested in the RSA um, encryption algorithm done on a T-shirt. But that that was the point was to wear this T-shirt on planes, and in fact, I did wear it on international flights where I distributed the RSA algorithm on my T-shirt outside the US by getting on a plane and going uh, to a foreign country and the customs control and border control people never noticed and never understood that, that you could put this encryption algorithm on a t-shirt. So this obsession with export controls I think is, is, a, is a, it's sort of a, a leftover from a time when you could actually control the borders and distribution of digital media across borders, which you can no longer do. Yeah. It's impossible to control the moving of digital information from one jurisdiction to another anymore. Yeah. And so, and so I, I don't blame Mozilla for saying, well, we don't have an export control number. Figure it out for yourself. Because well, but the, if you're in within the TSU exception. Right. And that's your point. Yeah. I, I mean, then you comply by sending in your notification. Yeah. 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 So you had other interesting things you thought were worth raising. Much more than I, I only had three no, points. No, actually, we're through, most of, we're through most of them. I, I just kind of liked the way he used the term licensing archaeology. I thought that was cool. It's something that we often have to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, so I thought that that was pretty cool. So that was one of my notes, which isn't really much of a topic for discussion. Um, what did you think of the um, of his recommendation to go with CC0? I, I, or, I'm, or okay with, I'm okay with, with CC0 or Apache for small patches. I, I don't... I, yeah, I don't have issue with it. Obviously, it, Apache is a great recommendation for a permissive license with a patent provision. Yeah, well, for small patches in particular, the likelihood that a small patch would um, yeah, and it's not going to require it's not going to infringe the patent. I mean, you don't think she's so upset by patents. Well, software patents. She's against software. I mean, you even mentioned software patents. Yeah, right? she so, just goes crazy. But yeah, <laughs> but I don't. I, for a small patch, the likelihood it's going to particularly infringe on the patent. The fact that the patch might come in under CC zero. I mean, I mean, CC zero is okay. I mean, Cora is licensing right. her um, her works here under CC zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've just decided. I mean, actually, you can decide as a parental authority to license her works as CC0. Ah! Well, I guess I've decided for, I guess, on her behalf, I decided ah! that her her ah! creative expression is going to be released under um, CC by SA. But it could be licensed CCC. Yeah. I mean, that was sort of Jerv's point, is that you could offer a CC0 patch up to a project that has a more... Um, complex license. Oh, and to clarify something that Jerv said, he said copyright. Ah! He, said, he said copyright is about copies, not about functionality. Yeah, I was bothered by that too. It's yeah. not. Ah! He, he meant to say copyright is about expression. Yeah. yeah. Not about functionality, and so we can evaluate whether or not Cora's expression is copyrightable here, or not. Well, in particular, the um, the. But there is a a a, a, a publication that we uh, Aaron and I actually did at SFLC that. Um, uh, that speaks in depth about this issue. If anyone would like to, <laughs> you mean the copyrightability memo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a little bit too in depth, I think, for most of our listeners to, to consider. It's a little legally, yeah. legalese, but the, but it's really de in depth. So, so uh, did you have anything else of of Jerv's talk that you wanted to? Um. Uh. Oh, so I mean, my point about the CC zero is just that I think that I do think that a lot of hackers really want their copyright notices preserved. Um, you know, 
in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so another license might be better. But uh, uh, I was going to ask you if you checked out Jerv's license scanner. No, I mean, I, it, his description of it was a little, was basically that it's not... There are so many of these things. Well, I, I, I think everybody... I'm it, speaking it, to someone at, a, at a, actually an automotive company who has a bunch of scripts. And well, it's, 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 it's the usual 80-20 issue. It, it, yeah. I bet there's a lot of license um, scanning utilities for source code. And what Karen's talking about specifically is, and Jeremy's talking about as well, is scanning source code for license headers and license information and trying to infer uh, what license code is under based on what you can find in the source code. And Karen's, I think, quite correct that there are a number of these. And I, what my point was that basically they're under the 80-20 rule. I bet there's a lot of them that handle 80% of the cases really well, and there's very few of them that handle the last 20%. Um, and I know that was actually a struggle within the fossology community because there was sort of a pushback of, of our, you know, which license scanner to use a long time ago. And, and I think there isn't really... Uh, a, a, they, nobody's done a solution, I think, for the last 20%. Um, I like the Ninka one that the folks at... Um, I forget what university they're at. Um, it's where... Um, um, uh, uh, that guy, um, DWJ, DWG is at, I'm trying to think of this what university. Oh, oh, yeah, no, um, I'm not sure. He, well, he, it's mainly because it's command line. The, the frustration we all have with fossology is it's like this infrastructure that right. you have to install. And it sounded like Jervs was very similar to that in that it was a command line kind of mm-hmm. utility, but it's probably just sort of, uh, the, he even said it's the most it's basic. Very lightweight, and, yeah. And probably not the thing you'd want to use if you had to. He used it as in a one-off in some sense to find the copyright holders of all the Mozilla code base. Well, Cora is telling me that she thinks that we've adequately addressed all of the issues that were uh, that we wanted to follow up from Jerv's talk. Okay, so uh, I hope folks enjoyed. I'm sorry about the three-week delay, which you experienced six weeks ago. And uh, <laughs> it, well, actually, it was three weeks ago by the time you uh, time you enjoyed this particular podcast. <laughs> Thank you for helping it. with my childcare. <laughs> to all of our listeners. <laughs> no, I, I think I think folks will not mind. It's it's not a it's not a major interruption at all. And uh, and the and they I, I I can guess by what people impound uh, faith in Freenode, uh, which is where our IRC channel is, would say, which is they would rather have the new content than than the you know, occasional baby noise is better if they can no get new content. content whereas yeah. if we had to delay the content anymore. So uh, so we'll be back in future with uh, we're still trying to push through the Fosdom uh, talks. We skipped oh. one. But I think we're pretty much planning to do those going forward. And yep. we'll probably be done by the, before the summer, I would hope. I really hope so. so. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Praise and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Play. Now it, we have a little circle. Now it's actually recording. Okay.
Okay. Okay. So let's see if this is any better with Tom's cloth solution. Okay. This is a, a sound test using the cloth solution to see if we don't pick up as much background noise. The well, the and the echo won't be as bad when there's more people in there. But then more people might be, you know, more noise chattering. Yeah. We'll see. So I wasn't actually paying attention to you.